Hello and welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And in today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into the prodigious view of Chinese history espoused by the Chinese Communist Party. China has 5,000 years of continuous history. You've probably heard that before. But this ostentatious claim is more nationalistic than academic. To reach this 5,000-year mark, the CCP has stretched their definition of history. So, what is the factual basis for this claim, and how and why does the CCP use it as propaganda? Chris Patton, the last British governor of Hong Kong, wrote a line in his swearing-in speech which referenced the two great and ancient civilizations of China and Great Britain. CCP officials took offense, arguing that Chinese civilization was much older than the West's. Patton eventually decided to include the line anyway, which led to the CCP branding him as a whore, a criminal, and a serpent. I have a different story, which may be a little bit more familiar. A lot of you have probably even heard it. Um, Back during Nixon's 1972 visit to China, Henry Kissinger sat down with the then Prime Minister of China, Zhou Enlai, and at some point they got around to discussing the French Revolution. Kissinger at one point asks the Prime Minister what he thought about the consequences of the revolution, to which Zhou Enlai replied, too soon to tell presumably looking all sage-faced out the window, lost deep in thought. Uh, Since disavowed by those in the room on the American side, it turns out the actual event in question was a set of 1968 student riots in Paris four years earlier, not the French Revolution, which would have been 200 years earlier. Uh, But that did not stop Nixon's interpreter from letting this one slide. He claimed that it was, quote, a misunderstanding that was too delicious to invite correction, and the story has proliferated since then. So we chose these two examples to lead into the episode because they show how China sees itself, which in turn affects how the rest of the world views it. The CCP implicitly argues that because of its age, China is a patient and farsighted civilization, a direct contrast to the short-sighted, Trump-electing basket cases that are Western democracy. So let's get right into the history that constitutes that 5,000 years. And before we get into our list... I would ask everyone listening to briefly consider the clear difference between Homer's Iliad and Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Both are considered history, but under different definitions of the word. Homer's Iliad is a mythic epic. Thucydides' history is a contemporaneous account of events which are corroborated by the archaeological records and other texts from the time. Similarly, in China, there is a clear distinction between the mythic accounts of the Shah dynasty which is only mentioned in stories written long after their supposed existence, and the established history of the Han Empire. It's only because both are considered history that the CCP is able to arrive at the 5,000-year mark. Organized societies did exist in geographic China 5,000 years ago. But were these societies Chinese? To answer this question, we need to consider the things that constitute a civilization, concepts like language and philosophy, literature and music, governments and states. How much of what we would consider quintessentially Chinese was present 5,000 years ago? 
Right, so before we get into the history itself, a quick disclaimer, we're going to be covering approximately 5,000 years and hopefully five minutes, maybe 10. So there's going to be some, you know, simplifications, uh, glossing over some stuff. That's just how it is. We mean, uh, you know, no we are not trying to be disingenuous anything here. Um, so with that out of the way, let's turn our attention first to uh, the Han Dynasty. The Han ruled from roughly 200 BC to 280, uh, beginning 2,200 years ago. And the Han definitely check off all the boxes to be considered as part of history. Uh, they're widely considered to be a golden age within Chinese history, and that's because of a number of factors, including the written and spoken language, which was a direct precursor to modern-day Chinese. Uh, their culture incorporated elements of Confucianism, Taoism, the Mandate of Heaven, legalism, all concepts that um, you know are still present in Chinese society today. Uh, the Han was unified, prosperous, and powerful. They controlled most of what is geographic China today. And lastly, just kind of as an anecdote, uh, the term Han Chinese is from the Han Empire. So <clears throat> the descriptor of the majority ethnic group within China today, Han Chinese, traces its roots back to this dynasty. This is also the period of time when a tremendous amount of Chinese culture, Chinese language, customs were exported to surrounding regions in the world. As we mentioned on our first episode of the podcast, China at one point functioned as this epicenter of all those different things for uh, other areas around them like Korea, Manchuria, Japan, Vietnam. So this was definitely a cultural high-water mark for classic China. There's another dynasty that came right before the Han that we don't want to dive too deep into. They're called the Qin. The reason we don't want to go too deep is that they only existed for about 15 years, but they did uh, create a lot of the initial territorial gains, which unified the majority of the core of what is today China, that the Han Empire sort of inherited after their after their downfall. The other reason they're a little interesting is because they are one of the first Chinese dynasties that made contact with some of the other empires in the wider world, including the Parthians and the Romans, and we believe this is where they got the name China from, right? Qin Dynasty, Qin uh. Uh, this began roughly 2,200 years ago, which is less than 50% of the way to the 5,000 years that the CCP claims. And, you know, if you get less than a 50% on a test, that's an F. So the next period that you could arrive at is what's known as the period of the Zhou Dynasty, which was from roughly 1000 BC to 250 BC, beginning 3000 years ago. Uh, the period of the Zhou was a long reign, but it was never really politically unified and definitely not a golden age of Chinese culture like the Han and the Qin were. But the important thing to understand about the Zhou is that all of the most important quintessentially Chinese uh, society organizing concepts, the ones that we just mentioned, Confucianism, Taoism, Mandate of Heaven, which the Zhou actually invented, uh, legalism, all these ideas arose during this period. So whether by intent or not, the Zhou really proved to be a fertile ground for Chinese ideas and cultures that still exist in the country to this right. day. And notably, the different states which made up these warring states uh, came with their own cultures, languages, political traditions. In many ways, they resemble more of a patchwork of European states that we might be more familiar with than they ever did, some unified Chinese nation. And for that reason, we can see that in the Zhou dynasty, there's an embryo of Chinese culture present. But to argue that this is the start of the Chinese nation might be a little bit disingenuous. I mean, the amount of land that the actual Zhou controlled was something like the size of Portugal, uh, nowhere near what it ended up becoming later down the line. Um, also, interesting factoid, this is when The Art of War was written by Sun Tzu. So again, yeah, a lot of important seminal Chinese cultural works came out of this period of time. Like You can definitely trace, I think, Chinese civilization maybe to this time. Chinese nationhood is, I think, a different question, but I'll leave that to the side for now. Other important works include I Ching uh, and the works of Mencius as well. So to place this into some 
context, some historical context, the life of Confucius, again, someone who lived at this time, roughly parallels the life of Aristotle, uh, Alexander the Great, and Pythagoras. So this is very close to Greek antiquity. So for clarity, the to argue that the Zhou is the beginning of Chinese history strikes us as totally reasonable. It's really as we kind of get further and further back that that claim becomes a little bit more ostentatious. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, but still... Uh, Beginning of the Zhou is 3,000 years ago. That still is far short of the 5,000 years claimed by the CCP, so we obviously need to continue to broaden our definition of the word history. The next period to arrive at is what's known as the Shang Dynasty. The Shang ruled from 1600 BC to roughly 1000 BC, beginning 3,600 years ago. And the important thing about the Shang is the Shang is as far back as we have definitive, internationally accepted, hard archaeological evidence of their existence including most notably what's known as the Oracle Bone, dating back to 120 BC, uh, 3,200 years ago. And the Oracle Bone is the earliest known decipherable document of proto-Chinese characters. So this is the first written Chinese text that we have today. So if you want to define history as written history, it's during the Shang is as far back as you can go. The fog of history creeps up quite distinctly uh, around the period of the Shang Dynasty. There's a lot that we don't know. Uh, and, and honestly, even backtracking a little bit, there's a lot we don't know about the beginning of the Zhou Dynasty, the one that we just mentioned. Most of the seminal cultural works that we talked about were grouped into the last 200 to 300-year block of their 700-year reign, pretty much everything except for Yi Shang. So imagine what we know about the Shang. It's not very much. Pretty much everything was just written on these bones that Sam just talked about. Uh, and this only gets us about 66% of the way to the 5,000-year mark. Uh, again, some more uh, historical parallels. This is around the same time of the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. So think Mycenaeans, ancient Egypt, not like Cleopatra, but like ancient, ancient Egypt, uh, King Midas, the Minoans, the Phoenicians, the Sea Peoples, and uh, a variety of biblical legends as well originate from this period. Uh, I mentioned with the Shang the definitive internationally accepted hard archaeological evidence because that is going to be in direct contrast to the next period that you could arrive at in terms of history. Again, Shang still short of 5,000 year mark. Um, <clears throat> so let's turn our attention to what's known as the Jia dynasty. The Jia supposedly ruled from 2000 BC to 1600 BC, beginning 4100 years ago. And I say supposedly uh, because we have no contemporaneous records at all of the Jia. They're not mentioned in any of the earliest Chinese texts. Think, think about you know the time from the Oracle Bone, all that sort of stuff. Um, in fact, the earliest mention that we have of the Shah comes from what's known as the Book of Documents, and the dating of this is a little bit fuzzy, but 1,000 years after their supposed rule is not an unreasonable milestone to place. So that is <laughs> that is far from a contemporaneous account. You know, there's no there's no cell phones, no video, nothing like that. So if the first written mention that you have of a society is a thousand years after their supposed rule, that you have to take that with not a grain of salt, but like a boulder yeah, of salt. Yeah, I mean, do you remember how inaccurate all the rumors that you heard about other people in middle school were? Just imagine that compounded over several hundreds of years through people that have like <laughs> very strong incentives to embellish their stories. Um, so we don't. There's very little that we can prove about the Shah. We knew that there were people that existed in organized societies, in urban settings. I mean, that's all well and good, but to what extent was it politically unified? To what extent was it Chinese? We really don't know. Was there even a China at this point? I don't I don't think we can say that there was because most of the important elements of history and culture, at least the ones that I think are important that aren't just pure blood and soil, they blossomed much later, but that doesn't stop the Chinese government today from arguing that this constitutes Chinese history without giving any sort of caveat. Right. But, you know, even if you were to consider the Jia as definitive parts of Chinese history, that still only gets you 4,000 years into the past. So, 
to arrive at the long-awaited 5,000-year milestone, da-da-da-da, we have what's known as the Longshan culture, which was in China from 3000 BC to roughly 1900 BC, beginning 5,000 years ago. And so what's important about the Longshan? They were a Neolithic culture that had silk production and some pretty impressive pottery. And that's it. it that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's the it. story. <laughs> and, and to be fair here, actually, there is an account that comes out of the official party line in China that claims that there was indeed an empire. There was indeed an emperor. Uh, so let me tell you about this dude who supposedly founded China. He's called the Yellow Emperor, Huangdi. And he supposedly ruled for a hundred years and lived for 120 back at a time when a paper cut would have meant instant death and infection. Um, So he also supposedly invented the wheel and archery, uh, both of which I believe were present in Egypt way before this date. Yeah, he sounds like another one of my fantastic leaders, uh, Kim Jong-un, you know? Ooh, yeah. (laughs) Probably less chubby. Um, You know what else else is 5,000 years ago? I mean, excuse me, you know what else is 5,000 years old? Would be Stonehenge. You don't hear Boris Johnson up there making reference to 5,000 years of glorious British culture because they recognize it's not quite the same thing just because a couple uh, cavemen lived in the same plot of dirt. Okay, maybe not. Maybe this is past the point of cavemen, to be fair, but you, you know what I'm saying. Like, what, Neolithic what, cultures. Yeah, what ties these Neolithic cultures to the people who occupy the same piece of land? Well, that's pretty much it. It's blood and soil at this point. Well, as Mike was saying, blood and soil is really the definition of history that the CCP is using to arrive at that 5,000-year mark. Um, And, you know, with good reason, you would be laughed out of polite society if you were to make a parallel historical argument in the West. We don't accept the basis of the fact that some people of the same ethnic lineage inhabited the same plot of dirt as evidence of history, civilization, culture. Um, You know, but meanwhile, the CCP is essentially making exactly that claim without any caveat. It's saying, oh, 5,000 years, you know, without like, oh, the last, you know, 2,000 of it are kind of a little bit more up in the air. Yeah, and to further differentiate this, there's a difference between the history of a nation and the, uh, excuse me, the history of a civilization, right? So in America, we traditionally say 1776, the date of our founding. Um, But Western civilization, you might argue, starts with Athenian democracy, or maybe you want to place Jerusalem. Maybe you want to, yeah, maybe you want to place it at Jerusalem. Uh, But you don't, most people aren't going to go as far as to say that the Mycenaeans, who were also kind of Greek, sort of, constitute Western civilization, because a lot of the quintessential ideas and uh, the frame of the culture was just not quite set. Yeah. And lastly, I mean, you know, it's not like anyone in the West, for the most part, is really using this as a as, as, as a claim to sort of bludgeon their opponents with, like, oh, you have to listen to us because we have all these years of 5,000 you know, 5, years of Western civilization or anything like that. It, and we'll, we'll get to more of this in just a second, but it's really a CCP line to argue that history confers them special advantage and special privilege just by dint of being so old. All right, so I think now is a good time to move on to a little bit of the, uh, the, the proof that the CCP likes to give uh, in support of this claim and just to sort of discuss how, like, how can you recognize this stuff when you see it and how is it being done? Right. So um, we're going to give a couple examples of the intentionality behind the 5,000 years prodigious history that uh, the CCP is all about. The first of which is what's known as the Sha Sheng Zhou Chronology Project. Uh, this was a multidisciplinary project commissioned by the CCP in 1996 to determine the precise date and location of the Sha Sheng Zhou Dynasty. Shocker, right there in the title. <laughs> um, the project used a bunch of methods, including radiocarbon dating, archaeological da- uh, methods, historical textual analysis, astronomy astronomy, and a bunch of other methods in order to achieve a greater temporal and geographic accuracy. Now, the important thing about the project is that, on average, the project's finding 
push back the various states, whether they were individuals, uh, city-states, nations, wars, etc., uh, approximately 20 to 50 years further into the past than the generally accepted consensus was beforehand. So if you know some guy lived at 1000 BC, the project would say, oh, no, 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 he actually lived at 1025 BC. Um, you know, and, and only about 12% of the entire project's findings found that the uh, date was earlier than previously accepted. So it, basically the project was a very unidirectional push in order to make Chinese history look even older than was previously accepted. They also claim to have unequivocally established that the Shah dynasty was real. The Shah, as you might recall, was the one where the historical record completely runs out, and there's really no proof. There's just evidence of some settlements, but that's really it. No written records, uh, no indication whatsoever that this was part of a unified dynasty at any point in time. Um, so I want to pull a quote from journalist Peter Hessler. He worked for The New Yorker and then National Geographic. Writing in his book, he says, quote, "...internationally, the project has been heavily criticized." Many foreign scholars believe that the Chinese are attempting to fortify their history in ways that are more nationalistic than academic. Some say that the project was motivated primarily by a sense of competition with the West. Um, you know, and despite the international criticism of the project, that hasn't stopped it from becoming orthodoxy within China. Um, so, for instance, you know, textbooks and reference works now use the project's dates as the definitive dates. Um, and moreover, uh, <clears throat> the dates as found by the project are considered the correct answer on Chinese school exams. And, you know, this is not the point of this uh, episode, but these are, these are, the sc Chinese school exams are really, really, really big deal. You get one in your entire life. And it's not an exaggeration to say that it determines the, the remainder of your arc of the arc of your life. Like it is so monumentally important. And, you know, here you are, you have to put down these dates as the answer. It's the culmination of literally all of your education into a singular test that determines your career prospects from there on out. And yeah, uh, I've heard stories of grandmothers freaking out because their five-year-old doesn't know the English word for microscope yet. That's how that's how seriously <laughs> they take these tests. Um, yeah, it is a it is a big big deal and. You know, in this very big deal, you better give the answer that the party wants. So, speaking of big deals, let's talk about something that Donald Trump did back in 2019. <laughs> hey, you like that segue? Uh, yeah. Eh, whatever. Uh, so, it's good. It's good. It's good. You were good. You were good. You were good. Enjoy it. So. After a fresh round of escalations of the trade war back in May 2019, uh, an anchor from CCTV, that is, of course, a state run news outlet in China. Uh, went on a rant, which ended up, ended up going super-duper viral on the Chinese internet, in which the anchor says something to the effect of, quote, after 5,000 years of trials and tribulations, what kind of battle have the Chinese not been through, unquote. And of course, he remained hot under the collar, and this, this went on for about three minutes. The clip was viewed over three billion times as of May 2019. Which, if you're doing math, means that everyone in China viewed it at least twice. That's so. totally that's, <laughs> one point one. Yes, yeah, no one, funny. One point four billion people. No yep. stat padding so. whatsoever. I'm sure. Yeah, um, yeah. You can clearly see he's espousing this mentality of, "Hey, America, we were here before you. We're older. We're smarter, and we're going to be here long after you've been ground into dust. We will weather whatever storm you want to throw at us because." age because 5,000 years. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so another great example occurred uh, also in 2019 when 
The UN UNESCO World Heritage Sites um, designated what's known as Longju Ancient City, an archaeological site, um, as another UNESCO World Heritage Site. And there was a flurry of activity from Chinese state media as a result of this, uh, and we want to bring your attention to two that we found particularly telling. The first of which comes from uh, China Daily, which is the English language version of the People's Daily, again, state-run media. Um, they were quoted as writing, the archaeological ruins of Langzhou, which date back 5,300 years, is considered an important representation of early urban civilization, with rice cultivating agriculture as the economic foundation. China now has 55 entries into the World Heritage List, the most in the world. Ooh, yeah, like just American in case they coronavirus were... cases. <laughs> yeah, just in, you know, just in case you missed the subtlety of the braggadocia there. So mine's bigger is what they're trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and we found a. Uh... Well, I stumbled across a couple YouTube videos, and I'm not going to tell you that these videos themselves are a big deal. It's just that what was... They didn't get 3 billion views? No, they did not get 3 billion views. I don't think I've seen <laughs> anything ever with 3 billion views or plays, uh, including your mom. But... <laughs> <laughs> But what I found in these videos, what the narrator said, I thought was particularly illustrative. So I'll take you one from this video titled Langzhou Ancient City, Testament to 5,000 Years of Chinese History. This is, of course, in response to this site making the uh, UNESCO World Heritage List. And it's introduced by this young 20-something super cute uh, Chinese girl who starts off by saying, you know, I just, I didn't do very well in Chinese history in school because there's just so much of it. Ha ha ha. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're softening up their propaganda these days. They've learned that the uh, tanks in the streets aren't very convincing to a Western audience. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> it, the, a later quote from the video says, you know, this clearly represents the great achievement of prehistoric rice cultivating civilization from China over 5,000 years ago and as an outstanding example of early urban civilization. Yeah. Um, you know, and th again, this is from uh, CGTN, China Global Television Network, goes without saying, also state media. And Mike, Mike. Mike was fair in so far as this didn't, this video didn't get a ton of views, but with both this video and the People's Daily, it's worth examining because this is official state media. The, like, if anything is going to be published, whether as video or text or whatever, it has been approved by the party censors and making sure that it conforms to the image that the CCP wishes to convey. And that's why we're taking this in-depth look at it. It's not just, oh, somebody on the street believes this. This is official party doctrine that not only do they espouse internally, but want to project to the rest of the world. Yeah, in case you can't tell, imagery and posturing is very, very important to the CCP uh, because we have more planes and tanks. Um, so <laughs> I want to I take another quote from a separate video that I found. And this one I found especially great, just delicious. Here we go. It says... Um, it's people, speaking of the people from this particular old site, it's people may have been quintessentially Chinese, laying the foundations for Taoism and the mentality of southern China. And I had a thought that maybe it's not the religion, but the land that influenced the way these people worked with nature and perhaps continues to influence the lifestyle of Shazuan people today. Yeah, so there it is, very explicitly. That is a blood and soil argument. You know, a little bit more flower in the language, but that's uh, it's got the people and it's got the land as the definitor, uh, as the definitive progenitor of Chinese culture. So that's yeah, well, yeah, soil I, but right he's there. also trying to he's also trying to claim well, some of the legitimacy comes from the fact that they quote laid the foundations for Taoism and the mentality. It's like is it the is it the land or is it the culture? Like you can't have your cake and eat it too, man. You gotta you gotta pick a lane and stay in it here. My opinion, um, and also like one, one little thought, like laying the foundations for something is not the same as the start of something. And to claim, and again, they're claiming that this that the Chinese nation has has a history that stretches back this far, that Chinese civilization stretches back this far, and these 
cultural concepts had not actually come about yet. There was just like a climate for them to occur. Maybe if that. Yeah, and you know we're harp- we're harping on all this uh, because it it, it effect- as as you saw at the top of this episode with uh, the Henry Kissinger story, it seeps its way into Western culture. As a matter of fact, this next example um, you can see it infiltrating the very highest rungs of Western intellectual thought, namely President Orange Man Bad Donald Trump. Um, so. <laughs> So in 2017, uh, Xi was receiving Trump in uh, the Forbidden City in Beijing, and they had an exchange that went roughly as follows, and I'm going to be Trump during this. China has a history that goes back 5,000 years, right? 5,000 years. Okay, it is a terrible idea for me to do the Xi Jinping voice here, so I'm not going to try. Yes, we have 3,000 years with a written language. I guess the older culture then is Egypt with 8,000. Now Trump's saying, (laughs) I bet theirs is bigger. (laughs) Uh, To which she replies, yes, Egypt is a bit more ancient, but the only continuous civilization to survive is China's. Yeah, right there. You know, and Xi was a bit more explicit in other examples. I found a really good one. Um, This is from a book that he wrote, The Art of Governance, when he was a CCP Um, higher-up, which this is like on page three. He writes, throughout 5,000 years of development, right right there, 5,000 years, Throughout 5,000 years of development, the Chinese nation has made significant contribution to the progress of human civilization. I would love to sit on the sidelines for some state visits from China to Egypt and just see like the the, the chest puffing (laughs) that must be going on between the two. Um, That was a missed opportunity here, but maybe next time. Yeah, but um, so speaking a lot of Xi, you know, one thing that really came up to me when doing research for this episode is it is actually remarkable that in 2020, the CCP is such... It markets itself as such a staunch defender of Chinese civilization, history, culture, all these things, when, you know, not even like 50 years ago during the Cultural Revolution during the 1960s and 70s, it was the destructor. It was destroying it. Like, um, the point of the Cultural Revolution was to eradicate the four olds, old ideas, old culture, old habits, and old customs. And it goes, like, almost with no exaggeration, during the Cultural Revolution, a thousand-year-old sculptures were melted down to create bullets to put in the back of the heads of historical scholars, etc. So, like, it is it is a total 180-degree flip, and it was just really striking to me, um, kind of the contrast. You know, and so when did this, when did this shift occur? Um, like most things in life, it happened slowly and then all at once. Uh, it, you began to see instances of the CCP market itself as defender of Chinese culture after Tiananmen Square Massacre, but... Well, yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to add like a uh, Hu Jintao, who was uh, Xi's predecessor, was big into Taoism as well, pretty overtly. He, he, that was part of his messaging. Uh, and Jiang Zemin, I, I don't know as much about Jiang Zemin. Hu Jintao came up with the idea and popularized the idea of what's known as a harmonious society within China. And this is something that definitely gets lost in the translation, but that's a very uh, Confucian-sounding idea to have a CCP leader espouse. And it gets it gets even more striking than that. Um, in 2014, and this is kind of what I want to p- put a pin on um, for this section, uh, in 2014, Xi visits Confucius's hometown and with a gaggle of state media behind him, press, you know, photos, all that stuff, um, grabs a copy of the Analectics, which are a, a collection of Confucian texts, as well as Confucius's by and proclaims to all of the media watching him, I want to read these very carefully. And again, this is so striking because the CCP is officially a state atheist party, but Confucianism is a quasi-religious philosophy. Um, so you, know, you have the leader of a state atheist group saying, I'm very interested in this semi-religious text and everything. You know, and not long after, Xi publishes his own collection of Confucian amorphisms in the People's Daily, uh, such as a state without virtue cannot endure. Yeah, Xi definitely relies on uh, sentiments of Chinese nationalism to bolster his legitimacy 
legitimacy because if you listen to our fourth episode, you would know that his rule is far from totally solidified. He has his challenges. Uh, but leaving that to the side, um, another funny Xi Jinping story. <laughs> Just to show you, I, I don't think he's faking it entirely. Like here, Here's something that happened a couple years ago. Um, there's this mountain range in China that's called in their tongue the Dragon's Spine. And through this mountain range, the energy and the health of the emperor is said to to flow through. So a bunch of construction companies ended up building these mountain villas and towns along this mountain range, and she thought it was going to mess with his feng shui, so he ordered it all torn down. And funnily enough, they actually lied to him. They rolled their eyes and just pretended to do it and then didn't. And when she found out, very bad things happened. Yeah, you could say he uh, dropped the hammer and not at one of those construction sites. So. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> All this, really, all this is to highlight the fact that history and culture, particularly when it comes to the CCP, it is subservient to their interests. It's not as much about the historical claims being super sacrosanct, super important to them, uh, per se. This is most starkly obvious when it comes to their territorial claims, of which, let let me just tell you right now, China has more territorial disputes than it has actual geographic neighbors, like significantly more disputes <laughs> than it has actual countries that it touches. Um, be- Which is hilarious, as an aside. Yeah, because they claim to touch a whole bunch of countries. A, um, They're like the Joe Biden of countries. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could – I think there's better examples, but okay. Um <laughs> So, okay, so the South China Sea obviously has tremendous strategic importance for them. There's natural natural resources, there's oil, there's valuable shipping lanes. It helps them escape their, like, first island ring box that we've talked about before. So they're very aggressive in pushing that, even though they've never actually controlled any amount of it at all. There were just some lines drawn on a map that they claim to indicate uh, China once possessed this territory. Yeah, the the South China Sea is definitely a topic that we're going to do a whole episode unto itself at some point, but... The historical claims for the Nine Dash Line, especially in contrast to the next two examples Mike is going to highlight, are very flimsy, and it's not enough really to hang your hat on, but nonetheless, uh, the South China Sea is of tremendous geostrategic importance to the CCP, so you know here they are making historical claims to it. Yeah, ch- check a Google Images result of, of uh, China's claims there. It's like... It's like truck nuts. Just like, look, <laughs> look. I mean, not not just in, not just in figure, but okay. Anyways, getting too deep into that. Uh, Tibet is another great example of a geopolitically important important region to China, where they push claims which may or may not have veracity to them. So, you want to know what they definitely have a strong claim to, historically speaking, is North Korea. North Korea was actually incorporated into the Han Empire and was passed along to uh, later dynasties like the Tang. But, but obviously. North Korea is a hot potato, and nobody wants to touch that. No one wants to deal with it. So you don't hear anything about North Korea uh, and China's right to control that part of the world. And even even more obvious, there's a, another very interesting territorial overlap that they have, and that is in Vladivostok. And if you can't tell by the name, it is not Chinese today. <laughs> it's right. So uh, back during the Opium Wars in the 1800s, China lost part of its northern territory to Russia, and Russia renamed the city Vladivostok. It's now their biggest city in the east. But Xi Jinping cannot afford to alienate Putin because they're quite want for friends on the world stage right now. So you again, you don't hear much about that. The only reason I even know about it is because a couple uh, hawkish journalists in China mouthed, out, mouthed off about it on Twitter in response to like some Russian government celebration of the city. They got all sassy about it, but Xi Jinping kept his mouth shut. Yeah, so the point of this all, um, just to reiterate, is that the 
the historical claims are always subservient to whatever is politically expedient at the moment. You know, if China wants to make a claim, they can drum up some historical uh, examples where they might or, you know, should or whatever control it. And if they have no reason to want to make these uh, aggressive claims at the moment, then they'll just ignore it. And, you know, it's not like they're all hot under the collar about their history in these examples. No, they're happy to let it go. The strength of the claims is much less important than the geopolitical usefulness of those claims. And the very same applies to this I, this concept of China having 5,000 years of history, trying to paint the image that they are practically immortal and they are beyond, like China's always thinking in terms of centuries while us folly-prone democracies in the West are only thinking about the next election cycle, you know? So it's, it's, about, it's all about imagery. It's all about projection. Um, and again, the truth is subservient to whatever, the, the truth is just simply malleable in this case. Yeah, the truth is whatever the party says it is. Whether or not any country deserves unique consideration because of its age is debatable. What's not, however, is that the CCP deliberately inflates Chinese history to bolster their image at home and abroad. That's not to say China doesn't have a long and illustrious history because of course it does. But the CCP is selective and revisionist with its take on that history for political ends. So with that out of the way, we want to let our listeners know that the very next episode will be our first mailbag. We've already gotten a bunch of really great questions from you guys um, you know, that we're going to address next time. Uh, if you have a question that you would like answered, please send us an email at thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. No spaces, no period. Um, spell, the synopsis spelled uh, as it is on the show. We want to thank all our listeners for tuning into this episode of The Synopsis Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And until next time, remember... Nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.